Hi, this is Jim Lobato. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. On our program today is Charles Geist. Charles is the author of the new book, Collateral Damage, The Marketing of Consumer Debt to America. Charles, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Charles, before we get started on the questions tonight, I wanted to give our audience some of your background. In addition to working on Wall Street, you have written 17 books on the topic, including Undue Influence, How the Wall Street Elite Put the Financial System at Risk, Deals of the Century, Wall Street Mergers and the Making of Modern America, Wheels of Fortune, The History of Speculation from Scandal to Respectability, also Wall Street, A History. So those books plus the 13 others. So my first question tonight is going to be, Charles, where does your new book tie into your previous works? This book is sort of a watershed for the other, you know, the other four, um, although they were written um, with all best intentions in mind at the time, especially Wall Street of History. This one seems logically or naturally to be the last of that line for at least a bit until we see how the financial reforms and the rest of Wall Street develop over the next, let's say, year or two. So it's really been a progression of books then? Yes. Charles, what I'm curious about is the genesis behind this book. I can remember talking to friends several years ago, wondering what was going to happen at our generation when we showed up at retirement, because I saw a lot of people borrowing everything they could against their home, in other words, taking out home equity loans, and spending that money on consumer debt, and wondering how we were ever going to retire. Now, in your book, you call it consumer cannibalism. Is that what you were thinking about when you wrote this book? Yes, essentially uh, it was. I look at things because of the way I have to handle time periods, at least as I have in the past with books. And of course, this book looks at uh, consumer credit, consumer spending since the 1920s, although it's, it's most, most of its emphasis is on the, the recent period, obviously. But uh, I look at those time periods, and um, I find it difficult to blame greed on consumers. I mean, we all know most of us as consumers have been greedy at some time or other, and probably as a nation we're probably the greediest people on the face of the earth when it comes to wanting to buy things. But it's, that's not a very satisfactory answer for me. So I had to look at the mechanisms, the uh, Wall Street firms and the banks, that created the credit, which fueled this this uh, boom over the last, let's say, 10 years, especially in the mortgage market. And um, that's where most of the emphasis is, although it's peppered through with clearly the continuing demand on the parts of consumers. So uh, consumers, I suppose you could say, have always, at least since the 1920s in this country, have always wanted more and more. And when Wall Street figured it out about nine or 10 years ago, the mechanisms were put in place to make sure that we got more and more. So talk to us about what specifically you mean by those mechanisms and then the impact it's had on the current situation we find ourselves in 
uh, in not only in terms of the economy, but also our financial institutions? Well, for instance, I think that the most um, most prolific creator of credit in this country over the last 15 years has been something called the mortgage-related security, and that's just a general name. Uh, when a bank or a mortgage lender creates a mortgage, does it with the clear intention of selling it to an investment bank, which will make a pool of mortgages, and then give it to someone else who can use it as an asset to borrow a bond against. Uh, the process is called securitization. And um, what that process is, process is very efficient. It creates lots of consumer credit for credit cards and certainly for home mortgages. But the one flaw in the process is that the original lender who makes that loan, whatever type of loan it is, before selling it off to an investment bank or a commercial bank, traditionally would look at that as an asset. In other words, am I making a, a loan to a person whom I trust to pay me back? With this new process, he's just another agent in the process. So he or she, I should say, or it, more specifically, creates that particular loan with the intention of unloading it to the intermediary who then uses it to back a bond. And as a result, the entire process has become depersonalized and at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference how good a credit or how bad a credit that individual is as long as they get that loan. So what you're saying is the person making that loan didn't have to live with the consequences if it was a bad loan. That's right. So they're able to just to pass it off. And, and that's why people started commenting the fact that you used to get a home mortgage. It was your local bank, and now you send the check off to some bank you never even heard of. Well, yeah, it's... Um the loan is quickly sold with the intention of being sold. Uh, of course, we, we can't throw too many rocks at that process because it was the process since the 19, early 1970s, which helped uh, a good number of people buy homes who probably otherwise would have had difficulty or at least were at the early stages of their home buying careers. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were wonderful at that uh, until the recent crisis when they committed the same uh, crime by making mortgages to people who were outside their original guidelines. In other words, they're making subprime mortgages, which was never their original intent uh, by Congress. So uh, you can see how the process, like all processes, worked for a very long time before it became corrupted. And once it became corrupted, it just collapsed very quickly. Well, now that we find ourselves in this situation, how do we move forward? Moving forward is going to be difficult. Um, you know, as you say, you can look in the rearview mirror and you can see the roadkill behind you. Unfortunately, um, nothing else is going to be walking out of the woods anytime soon, which would be of any benefit to anyone because the securitization process, this mortgage-related securities process, has been somewhat tainted. Um, mortgage credit is no longer available for anyone except those who have very, very good credit ratings. Although we, we do expect, I think, in time that that will loosen up somewhat, or probably it's loosening up a bit as we speak. But um, down the road, consumer credit is going to be much more difficult to get a hold of. Mortgage credit will be much more difficult to get a hold of. And that's going to have a profound impact upon this economy, which um, has gone from about 66% of the GDP being driven by consumption to almost 80% in the early 2000s. And that's just actually a little bit tilted a little bit too much in the consumer's favor. And of course, when the consumer deflates, the economy goes with them. So 
this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are projecting uh, very, very slow growth for, let's say, the next five or ten years. You know, and that's why I think you're, we're still seeing in the news people talking about how consumers have not gone back to the level of spending that they have before. And is it lack of confidence, either their their income is secure, Charles, in your opinion, or is it the combination of lack of confidence and then the access to credit? I think it's both, but I, it, quite frankly, it's the access to credit, which I think hit first. Um, it, it's very difficult to say how well or how well-tuned the average consumer is to what's going on around him or her. And I think probably after after this crisis began, let's say in the late fall, early fall rather, of 2007, I think most people until early 2008, about a year and a half ago, didn't really perceive much of a problem. Um, And then all of a sudden things started to cascade, and the problem has got much worse, unemployment quickly grew. Uh, I think initially it was access to credit, and I think that after that people began to realize that the access to credit was essentially tied to employment. I mean, it's a natural, but it's, it's just not something you think about every day. And what's going to be the impact, you think, of from this tightening of the consumer credit availability to the businesses out there that really depend on this in terms of what they can expect? And also, how has this affected our businesses who also need access to credit? Well, one one of the unknown things which I looked at a few months ago uh, concerning that latter part of the question was that, for instance, credit card lines have been quickly withdrawn for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the lines have been shrunk for others, and that hurts small business in, a, in, a, in one particular way, which no one really thinks too much about. Most entrepreneurs are those who want to start businesses in this country. Uh, which account for about 50% of employment and you know economic output in some cases at some times, uh, use credit cards for that. In other words, they'll, they'll, they'll take a 15% credit card, go out and borrow a credit line against it so they can get started. They can't do that much anymore. And so that, as a result, I think it's going to be, at the grassroots level, that's going to be a real damper on entrepreneurial development. And it's just something which isn't looked at. And, Charles, the general economy, the general population, we seem to take it for granted that you have access to credit cards, you have access to debit cards. One of the statistics in your book I wanted to bring out, number one, because of the timing of this, and then you understand the sheer impact of this, you have in your book at the end of 2007, which if you stop and think about it, was really the start of the economy slowing down. Customers used bank-issued credit cards to pay for $4.34 trillion worth of purchases worldwide. And in your book, you state that the Americans and Europeans accounted for 75% of that. When you you think about that number, you think about what a tremendous impact that is to the overall global economy. $4.34 trillion used on credit cards. So I don't think those are going away pretty soon. In other words, the it may be restricted. There may be lines that are people to just cut out from it. But it appears to be so integrated to the overall economy that we're not going to go away from that. In your opinion, what are some of the lessons we can learn about how to move forward with our credit based on what we've seen happen when it gets out of control? Well, I think the more you 
one speaks to people about these problems that uh, people do recognize, at least I suppose those in my generation, those over 50, realize that when credit cards were originally introduced in the late 60s and became popular in the 70s, that uh, they were a convenience at the time. They weren't considered to be a source of working capital for the average guy in the street. So basically, uh, credit cards would uh, get rid of the need of carrying cash to go out to dinner uh, mm -hmm. or having money in your pocket. It, it was a safety issue. It was a convenience issue. And most people uh, treated the, even the revolving credit cards, uh, Master and Visa, very much like American Express. They'd pay their balances within 30 days. That's the original American Express card. And then the whole thing got out of hand somehow. And it's very easy. I think we've all done it. And we became addicted to it. Now, I, I think all having said that, that, that's pretty simple stuff to say. But the credit card companies recognize that all of a sudden they've become a source of working capital, in other words, short-term cash uh, for Americans, and they've taken full advantage of it. And I, I think that's the one thing here which has probably changed over the last 30 years substantially. In other words, Americans don't have bank balances much anymore. They rely on credit cards. When you consider that, what type of controls should we put on credit card companies? Well, there's two parts of it, uh, one of which has been addressed and the other part which I advocate in the book which hasn't been addressed. I mean, the first part is uh, the predatory behavior of the credit card companies, um, the deceptive practices, the fees, all the disguised uh, charges, the even gets down to using fuzzy fonts to print your and my credit card bills. Uh, that's been a lot of that's been addressed in the Credit Card Act, which has been passed and is being implemented over the next uh, year. But uh, my major contention was that all of that is just frills compared to the fact that credit card companies have now do now and always have been able to charge whatever the market will bear for interest rates on those cards. Now, I mean, there's different different kinds of rates for different kinds of cards. Clearly, there's fixed rate cards. Most of them are floating rate cards. But the floating rate cards especially, um, right now people are being charged 25% for reasons they don't know. And I, I think that's unfair because simply, I mean, we've all seen the examples, whether it be in TV ads, especially the guys who are selling the debt reduction services, the only part of those things which is actually correct is that certain kinds of uh, credit card balances, for instance, 5000 bucks being charged at 20%, It'll take something like 30, 40 years to pay something like that off. Higher rates, maybe never, if you're paying the minimum balance. Uh, I, I, I really do believe, and there's, there seems to be some grassroots interest in it, that uh, we need to move back to what we used to have in the 1970s and before that, which is in this country, usury laws, uh, caps on maximum rates of credit for consumer interest. Uh, we used to have them on mortgages as well, but the mortgage market is, is a slightly different animal than the consumer credit market, which is doing most of the bleeding of people right now on a continuing basis. So if we could actually take the idea, which we used to be found in most of the states for usury laws, most of which, by the way, don't happen anymore, uh, and adopt it on a federal level, and let's say cap interest uh, by whatever formula one wants to use, but cap interest at 10, 12, 13 percent, um, I think we'd be doing a lot of people a lot of good in the long run. Charles, you've written extensively on Wall Street. You teach finance. You have worked on Wall Street and, in essence, have documented the history of Wall Street. Looking forward, what is on Charles's radar screen? In other words, what's your next project? 
something that I was fooling around with before we got down to this book, which of course was prompted by the, the financial crisis. Um, for the last three or four thousand years, <laughs> this sort of a change of tact. For the last three or four thousand years, the idea of being in debt, usury, and all the other uh, topics which surround indebtedness um, has been considered anathema to most people. Uh, I think we all know the stories of the medieval church uh, prescribing usury, uh, that is charging of interest. In the Muslim countries, the, uh, the Koran still prohibits usury, so Muslim countries have to go to great lengths to be able to charge interest and disguise it as profit. Uh, that's a very long tradition, a very rich tradition, as it turns out, if you excuse the pun. But um, it's something I'd like to get back to and take a look at. There's elements of that in the book. We use them as actually as anecdotes or sidebars here to show people how we all are involved in a very long process, which has been going on for years. But I'd like to get down to that process and bring it, let's say, from you know Deuteronomy to the present, which is quite a mind-bending task when you think about it. From your studying and watching this and looking at where we're at in terms of what our current debt is and how we're choosing to address some of the slowdown, what do you think the short-term fallout from that is going to be? Well, I think the short-term fallout is that uh, people will people are doing the same thing that corporations and banks have had to do, in other words, deleverage themselves, get uh, more equity on their person, personal balance sheets and a lot less debt. Uh, the way this economy is geared, as you've alluded to all along, uh, that's not going to bode well for the economy. We're going to have to figure out another way or for some other party, whether it be government, which of course has done so recently because of the bailout package, to step in and pick up some of that slack that we find in the economy. Um, there's a correlation for every percentage of uh, the GDP which is taken up by consumer spending, and those numbers are extremely large. Um, so in other words, if consumers were to withdraw, let's say, from 70% to 60% of the um, of the GDP, it would cost trillions. And the only way to make sure we don't completely collapse as a result of that economically is to find someone to step into the breach. And who or what you think would fill that void? I think probably, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a massive question, believe me, but I think that we probably need um, probably social programs, political programs by government, very similar to the ones which were put on board in the um, in the 1930s. We, we do have them now, but they're all considered to be temporary, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why the word temporary has always been used. Uh, no one, that This is a fact that no one wants to face. Um, we're probably going to have to reduce you know, some of our spending on health care, uh, make people healthier, happy, get, it, get them doing different things. I mean, it's a massive, massive question. Um, I'm not too sure I'd be even competent to write the, the uh, an, an essay on how exactly that will be done it would take an awful lot of thought, but I, I think we're we're going to be that's what we're going to be facing within the next you know ten fifteen years. And is that mainly due to the transitional phase we find ourselves in, due to the aging of the baby boomers? Yes, it, it is it is purely yes, it is purely a transition. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't make any bets about what the economy looks like in twenty years. But I mean, if you look at, for instance, uh, what's what the economy is facing over the next. 15 years, uh, increasing number of baby boomers, which I talk a lot about in this book because they've been behind a lot of the recent trends in the financial markets, an increasing number of them will be retiring, or they at least they thought they were retiring until the current crisis. And uh, that just puts emphases in different places um, in the economy, especially in the health services and all sorts of things. Uh, 
real estate especially, that we haven't, we haven't experienced before. This baby boom generation, of which I'm a part of, is just um, it's something which has driven the economy since the 1960s, 1970s. And now it's going to be retracting a bit. I mean, the spending will still be there, but it'll be in different places. I mean, the challenge is to meet that. That is what other guests have been saying on this program, that there will be new and different opportunities. Oh, sure. I mean, be, we, we will definitely be in different ways of health spending. Uh, we'll be into greener stuff, into environmentally active stuff. And, yes, those are new industries in a sense, and they will take the place of older industries. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a fascinating time, and I'm, someone's going to make a lot of money on it, but I just don't bet it's going to happen within the next few years until we straighten ourselves out. If our audience was to read your book, they would find it fascinating on how credit cards started and what they progressed to today. You've done a wonderful job of capturing that history and its impact. As you wrote this book, Charles, you must have given some thought to where you see consumer debt heading. Share with our audience your thoughts on that. I'm not too sure it'll be materially different from what we've used it for before. I do think there's going to be a little bit less of it. Uh, Those numbers are going to start to come down a bit. Um, I think we all use credit cards basically for convenience. I do think those who use them as lifelines are going to find themselves in, in, in some trouble. Uh, that's still filtering through the system. I think that's part of this crisis, which not, has not yet appeared. I mean, I want to sound that overly pessimistic, but I mean, most people have wondered why the credit card crisis uh, hasn't appeared yet. In other words, defaults are affecting all those securitized bonds in the marketplace. Uh, that's, that's certainly coming. There's, some, there's elements to it out there already, certainly. I, I think we'll be using the cards for the same thing. I think we'll also be using debit cards a bit more. Uh, sometimes we get uh, a little bit mesmerized by the term card, but there are two types. And uh, the debit cards actually overtook credit cards in use in both Britain and the United States uh, in the early 2000s. So in other words, now at least half the card transactions are debit card transactions rather than credit. And of course, no one's arguing about that except for the fact that the credit card companies have spotted it and started loading these things with uh, predatory fees, which mm-hmm. is most recently. But uh, I think the card use remains the same. Uh, people are using debit cards as a way of allocating their working capital. I think that uh, that will probably that that shift will continue. They'll get a, they'll keep away from they'll keep away from credit cards. So I think the behavior of the consumer doesn't change. I just think the magnitude of this behavior will change. And the, the impact you think it has on the businesses that are in the credit card business? Oh, I think that they're going to have to find ways, new ways to make money. Uh, I've o- often thought, however, uh, and this is part of the book, which I rarely discuss with anyone, but the credit card companies are in a very unusual position in the payments mechanisms. In other words, people are using credit cards uh, instead of checks. So even the Federal Reserve has sort of tailed back its check-clearing facilities and moved some of it uh, to the eastern United States, at least to Cleveland, as a clearing center, closing other centers that they used to use, meaning that people are using more credit cards and using less checks. The check card, the check printing companies are probably suffering that as well. But um, the credit card companies really have, I think, at the end of the day, have a totally different motive in mind, and they're, they're pretty much of the way there. They have essentially taken over a large part of the payments mechanism, and there's not much use for money anymore. And how in God's name we ever let this occur in this country? Uh, With a blink of an eye, we we find several credit card companies, which are now clearly public, selling those franchises to banks and others, 
who have dominated the payments mechanism as they have and just never been a word, never been a peep, a complaint about this. Uh, we just essentially can't have the money supply in the hands, in private hands. And your concern over that is? The same concern would be with the banking system in, in the hands of an oligopoly, which it has been for a while. Uh, there's no accountability for that. There's not much recognition that people know what's going on. So as a result, if they decide to turn up, tune up the fee situation, uh, as the recent Credit Card Act wants to prohibit them from doing, they could literally bleed us all dry very quickly and just, you know, turn into the fifth estate in this country or even the fourth estate. We'd, we'd have, you know, the three, three houses, uh, excuse me, the two houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, the President, and the credit card companies. <laughs> well, I laugh about it, but... <laughs> It's a little sad, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that's uh, looming out there that, like you said, probably a lot of people are not paying attention to. Yeah, I could see just the natural progression of that. So, Charles, is there a question today that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you concerning what you've been looking at in consumer debt? No, I think you've pretty much covered the field. I mean, there's, 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 lots, of, uh, there's lots of stuff that are preliminary to what we've discussed, but these are the major topics, and... Uh, I think we've at least brought them to somebody's attention because I think they do need to be brought to attention. We don't want to have a crisis in five years from now where the credit card companies somehow magically collapse and all of a sudden we can't figure out who that last bill was paid to or whether it was actually ever paid at all. Well, and that's why we thought your book was important because it's another look at the situation we're in. There's a lot of moving parts. And to think that just because, you know, it was a little over a year ago, where we had the largest drop in the market and things have slowly come back from there, to think we're going to come out of this woods just as business as normal is not going to happen. So I, we appreciate the, the look you've taken at this and the, and the side that where consumer debt plays into this, and, and especially our credit card companies. So if people wanted to know more about this book or the previous works you've done, where would they go find information, Charles? right now a lot of the stuff has been put on Amazon's website they have author pages so you know this book and others are there so it's on amazon.com under my name okay charles thanks for being on the program my pleasure thank you this or other biz talk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com or you can subscribe to biz talk through iTunes if you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.